Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Australia podcast. We're bringing together the best technical leaders from across the Melbourne region to discuss industry passions, challenges and ideas. My name's Abby Green and I connect businesses with talented contractors in the software engineering market. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. So welcome to the Evolution Exchange Australia podcast. We bring together the best tech leaders from across the Melbourne region to discuss industry passions, challenges and ideas. My name's Abby Green and I connect businesses with talented contractors in the software engineering market. Today I'm joined by Lynn, the IT Portfolio Manager from CleanAway, Elzan, the Platform Manager of Application Engineering from Coles, and Alan, the Engineering Manager from TabCorp. And today we're here to discuss how do we successfully navigate delivery changes. And before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Uh, Lynn, would you like to kick us off? Uh, thanks, Abby, and uh, hi to everybody. Um, Lynn O'Leary, uh, I've been working in IT for a number of years. I won't say how many. <laughs> uh, my background is business analysis, business architecture, delivery management ranging from project to program and uh, the last few years more portfolio management. I have a passion around enabling the business to achieve their outcomes regardless of how we have to do that and bringing together the business strategy with a technology strategy and coming up with a way of making that happen. Uh, currently at CleanAway, um, which is waste management, so a really interesting business with a mix of um, white collar, blue collar and lots of interesting tech and also got a background in financial management and aviation. Fantastic, Lynn. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Elsa, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, everyone, and thank you, Abby, for inviting me to this discussion today. I really appreciate it. Um, I also began my career in business analyst uh, as a business analyst years ago, um, and then transitioned into different types of leadership roles, also ranging from product delivery to um, to platform manager where I am now. Um, I've I've been in consulting, been at fast paced tech tech companies, now a retailer, which is quite different, um, and it, all of them presents their own kinds of challenges when it comes to delivery. Um, I've been with Coles for about the last three years, having fun there, so um, um, so it's been really good. Um, my um, central drive is all about people, and um, if you have motivated people in your team, you can solve any problem you face. So um, that's central to all of the how I solve problems and how I go about doing things. Um, so yeah, as I mentioned through my journey, various different kinds of delivery challenges that I faced and, and solved with support from my peers. But I'm actually really um, excited to discuss those challenges with um to new people that I haven't spoken to before um, and getting <laughs> fresh perspectives on problems that everyone faces. Absolutely. Um, and last not least, uh, Alan, please can you introduce yourself? Hey, uh, so my name is Alan Alan Amblin. Um I'm an engineering manager at uh, TapCorp. I've got um, close to actually more than 15 years of experience in the tech space. Uh, just like Lynn, I've, I've been in the aviation industry as well and on the tech side. I worked with Singapore Airlines and a few other aviation uh, industries. Um, worked across in digital space and now in wagering for the last five years. Um, I, I've started off as a dev. I used to do programming. I've done mobile apps 15 years ago. Uh, not apps, like mobile systems. Um, then moved on to tech pre-sales, uh, went into product management, and for the last probably 10 years, I've been on 
uh, project management, project delivery, and um, agile um, sort of uh, rollout to companies. I work uh, rolled out agile practices in, in multiple co- companies in the past. Um, so yeah, that's me. Thank you so much, everybody, for your contributions. Um, and as I mentioned previously, just the amount of experience between the three of you is, um, is staggering. Um, and thank you so much for obviously joining us today to discuss the topic around how do we successfully navigate delivery changes. Um, we've collaborated quite a lot in terms of the discussion, so I'm really keen to get cracking um, and see what your thoughts are. So I'll usually just work my way around the room. So the first question being, what are the key challenges when navigating delivery changes? Um, so Lynn, I'm just going to pass this over to you first. What are your thoughts? Um, so I suppose over the years, having been involved in some really big um, transformational sort of level projects and, and initiatives, um, and often at any one point in those, there'll be something that goes wrong and you end up in a, a situation that, you know, you have to remediate. And I think if I have a, a bit of a reflection on what are the some of the common themes, I think regardless of the way of working, it comes back down to the process we go through up front uh, between that ideation and business case stage around how do we get realistic scoping, sizing and managing management of expectations. So that's one of the key themes. And often, particularly in immature organisations, um, and I've worked in, in different organisations that are different levels of maturity, um, I think that's one of the biggest challenges because the business uh, stakeholders don't often get um, or don't often have an appreciation of what's involved in doing transformational level change or what's involved in doing heavy tech change. And and they kind of get lost, particularly when we start talking about the different components and how they've got to integrate and how we've got to migrate data and, and so forth. So I think that area is a really difficult one to navigate through. Once we've got over the that point, one of the other key challenges that I've observed over the years is that ability to mobilise into delivery. Often we get through that business case piece and people just want to get cracking. And again, managing your business stakeholders to understand you can't go from zero to 100 and get a team on board and, and get your vendors sorted out and, and get the plans you know, to the next level in, in two seconds flat. So trying to manage that expectation and and I'm sure we've all heard business people say, I'm sick of planning. We seem to be in, you know, planning analysis, uh, analysis paralysis type activities, whereas um, the other way to think about that is we're actually doing work and, and we kind of need to do that work to be able to do the, the physical bits like fingers on keyboards. And then I think um, probably one of the other... Uh, key themes when we get into trouble it's again about managing stakeholder expectations about how we've got to get out of trouble one of the key things and it goes to what Elzan said in her introduction is people are so critical to delivery Um, it's people who deliver projects uh, not the technology the technology is the tool so when we get into trouble it's how do we lead and manage our teams through the process of understanding what we have to do to get ourselves out of trouble but then managing the stakeholders to be realistic about what's achievable and not achievable so all through that I think there's another underlying common theme 
that um, change is delivered by people and people are usually the biggest challenge. Yeah, we can make the tech do whatever we need it to do. It's about how we uh, get people to deliver it and use it and get the benefits from it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Some brilliant points made there, Lynn. Thank you so much. So I'm going to pass that around the room. Alzan, have you got any points to make around key challenges around um, navigating delivery changes? Yeah, um, I mean, everything that Lynn said really resonates with me as well. Um, there's the planning and, and all of that that you need to take into consideration. I think sometimes also we go in with changes um, and not really understanding um, how those changes are going to impact our results. So um, instead of just head on changing, like diving into the change, like um, taking a breath and understanding what are we hoping to achieve? Why are we changing this? Whether it's prioritization or how we're delivering our process of delivery, our methodologies we're using, um, all of those things need to be taken into account so we can actually um, measure our um, success of, of the changes that we faced. Um, I think also sometimes it can be quite challenging, um, especially in big organizations um, where there's multiple teams um, delivering together at varying degrees of maturity in their delivery process. So um, you can have a very like, high performing team that's a wild world machine. If you have a dependency on a team that's struggling with their delivery process, it's going to slow you down. And that's something that you don't, you can't control. Um, so it's facing into those um like I always look at the three, um, like I called it the onion, um, like you, you have the things you can control, um, you have the things you can influence, and then you have the things that you don't have any control over and just not wasting energy, any energy on those things and rather focusing on the first two layers um, in your delivery process is so important. Um, and I think that's where the leaders come, leadership comes in, constantly providing your team with that focus, reminding them of that, because it can be quite an emotional Thing when you're trying to change those things that you can't control so just bring the team back into focusing on you know like focus on the wins and, and the progress that we're making um and then i know we're going to talk about it later but there's always challenging when when um traditional um departments in a company like finance works in a completely different way to <laughs> technology delivery teams and having to deal with those challenges that that brings is always um interesting <laughs> Yeah, yeah, all really good points as well. Thank you so much, Elzan. Alan, is there anything that you'd like to add um, in terms of any key challenges that you face? Yeah, I think uh, I'm I'm currently in an industry which is um, slightly different, where it's regulated, it, it's wagering industry. So that itself brings its own challenges, especially especially when it comes to change. Because I, I would want to go and change a full stop somewhere, but that needs to go through all the government regulations. So everyone has to review it. The review process could take three months. So even though we work in an agile environment, we can't be fully agile, if you know what I mean. So change has to be taken very seriously because if you change something in the middle, the ripple effect could be massive. So I think the process is quite critical in, in navigating through changes and challenges in, in, in an industry like that. So banks would have these challenges mm -hmm. as well. Oh, yeah. We are in the similar, sure. do you know what I mean? So, so mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's an area that people will probably have to invest um, and communicate, especially to the business leaders. Because sometimes you'd want to make a change because it's going to have an impact to a customer or, or revenue or, or bottom line or whatever. But that last minute change could have a huge impact to the entire life cycle. So that, that's, I think, the, the one of the bigger challenges that we have in, in, a, in a regulated space. 
Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. And like you say, the points that are covered by all that in terms of strategy and going forward, um, and what comes with these now with what comes with these delivery changes. So on to our next question, like what challenges come with Agile and like what are the best strategies to use to overcome those challenges? Um, Alan, I'll pass that back to yourself. Thanks, Abby. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good good question because Agile's been a buzzword for a while. Like in any company you go to, everyone's like, "Oh, Agile, we want to be Agile, right?" The the reality is that Agile is just a buzzword. You got to define your flavor that works for your company, and that's where people sometimes fail because you get third parties to you know, they're brought in and they try and um, uh, uh, introduce an Agile process to the company, and that usually wouldn't work. Um, and it certainly doesn't work for us because um, I can give an example for us where we, we follow Scrum, so we do two-week sprints, but we can't release everything after a two-week sprint because it has to go through a rec process. So so if I were to follow a traditional release process and to submit everything every two weeks to the regulators, you're just going to pile up a queue with the regulators. That's not healthy for anyone. So, so I, I think change and agile needs to be managed so you need to look at our agile process better in order for us to be able to pivot for changes better uh, so i think what the way we've handled it in, in tapcorp is look at a hybrid model so uh, our day-to-day work is very agile so we we have scrum ceremonies we do sprint planning we do two weeks delivery but then once you hit the delivery phase becomes very waterfall. So you have a set deadline, you package everything up and then you go through a waterfall process, you get all the approvals and then you plan the release, then you go live. So that kind of works for us. Um, so I've spoken to people in the banks, pretty similar as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's the challenge. You got to, you got to be able to um, come up with your own flavor of agile if you want to succeed. Um, and so that, that'll be sort of my, my, um, view on how agile works in, a, in an environment like i mean yeah no, absolutely and as you say you're in a number of different areas as well um where these methodologies can be applied in different ways um lynn is there anything that you'd like to add in terms of the strategies that are best used within your space yeah look i really like what alan said about um you've got to come up with the flavor that suits you i think now i've been in three organizations that have gone through agile transformations and and i think it was helpful to get the mindset shift because particularly when i was um at one of the banks we we gotten a bit bogged down um so we needed a trigger to kind of help everybody shift and and have almost have permission to start thinking and and working differently so I think that side of it was good, but the point around, and, and I think we see this around the industry bit, we get people who are really passionate about the process and following the process. And it doesn't matter whether it's agile or waterfall or, or whatever process, but they kind of get a bit hung up on it. And I think that point around the process is a guide, but adapt to what the project or initiative is and what will work best to get the business outcome. And if that happens to be waterfall or it happens to be agile or it's the hybrid way, well, try and create the environment that allows that to happen because it's more important to get the business outcome than it really is the way we did it. No one will care how we actually delivered. What they'll care about was whether we were successful in delivering the results. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Elzan, is there any points you'd like to make in regards to strategies? 
around our yeah. child. Absolutely. Are <laughs> you ready? Think, yes, I'm ready. So I think um, Agile, uh, to Alan's point, um, it's sort of gotten this negative um, connotation to it over time because it was a buzzword over time. And at, at one stage, everyone was just doing the Spotify model um, without understanding what they're going to get out of, of changing the entire way their teams are working. Um, and I think what what we need, like, and even waterfall people, like, the same thing, everyone's thinking you shouldn't be doing waterfall delivery because then you're old school, you should be doing agile. And I don't believe in that approach. I believe there is something that works for every scenario. It's different. And you need to have the knowledge and the understanding of the difference between the methodologies to apply what works for your team. So I think um, the most important um, way to overcome these is to actually educate your, your teams to understand why certain things and ceremonies are being done within an agile methodology mm-hmm. and why we're doing it in waterfall and and the governance behind it so that they can apply the best um, to their situation and their team. And then tying into that, um, in my experience, um, like I've worked in companies where I was just focusing on managing a chapter um, and there was cross-functional teams that were operating. So I was not the only person um, from a leadership point of view shaping what the teams are doing and how they're doing it. And I've worked in spaces where I was solely responsible for the delivery of a squad. And um, I found that the best solution is to just educate and then give your teams the autonomy to decide what works for them. Um, Even now, my teams um, follow what works for them. Not everyone is doing the exact same thing. They've got their guardrails to understand why we're doing things and what adds value. But at the end of the day, they decide whether they want to drop ceremony or add ceremony because they know that it's going to add value. So not purist, hybrid, absolutely in support of, of that, but also educating your teams to understand when to apply what. Yeah, some really great points that are made there as well. Alan, is there anything that you'd like to add? Um, no, I think that's, just in terms of the responses. No, I think it's a very valid point on, on communication and sort of um, letting people know what the, the purpose of the ceremony is. I think that's kind of critical as well. Um, especially, especially for for multiple teams trying to achieve the same sort of target, uh, there's no point in one team doing it right and the other person, other team not doing it right, and it's going to cause a lot of issues. So I think that's quite critical. It's like a really good good call out there, definitely. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. Um, and which leads on to our next question, which is around instant communications. Um, so, Elzan, I'll, I'll pop this question to you. So, how would you improve intercommunications just to help manage dependencies? Yeah, I think that's what, um, one of the things we discussed before before we had this meeting. It's it's something that I think is on a lot of teams' minds at the moment, given the hybrid um, way that we're working. In the past, it was so easy to do a huddle at a desk, or you can hear someone talking about something over there, and I'm also interested in that, so you join the huddle. Um, but that doesn't happen anymore with people working remotely. So, um it's so important to to keep encouraging those connections, um, not only to solve problems together and to manage dependencies, but I think also to share knowledge um, and senior people can mentor the junior people in the team better. Um, so, so we've been, um, there's several ways we've been doing it, like I've been doing it over my, my experience. It's just um, buddying people up as a starting point when, when they're new to the team or new to their, their journey in their special area of speciality. So they have someone that they can go to and, and start building a relationship with so they can speak to them regularly. Um, but then we also have a, we call it our virtual office. So we have a, a public space where people discuss problems and challenges. Um, and anyone is welcome at any point to 
be a fly on the wall and listen in on what's happening in that space. So there would be a title and there would be a call, active call going and anyone can pop it to the call and just listen in. Um, so I'd encourage those huddles, but in a virtual a virtual way. Um, but it is it, it's very purposeful, like someone needs to initiate it. So I'm really keen to hear from Lynn and Alan on how they, they do that in their spaces. But dependencies is the other thing. And um, it's also a massive, a massive challenge because it comes back to the comments I made earlier about teams working in different ways. So um, if you're using a platform like Atlassian and you have Jira and it's, and it's managed well, it's easy because good data that goes in, you have good data that comes out. But if you don't do it well, it's rubbish in, rubbish out. So um, you need to find a way where you can have consistency around best practices for those things so that you can start managing it at scale. Um, if you do that well, it, it becomes re really easy to manage. Otherwise, um, the visibility of, of it is a little harder to establish. Um, so again, quite keen to hear from Lynn and, and Alan on their on their opinion on those managing those things. Yeah, no, 100%. And I really love the idea of that online huddle. I might put that to my boss. <laughs> uh, Lynn, what would, what would be your thoughts um, surrounding that intercommunications piece? Yeah, I think, um, I think similarly to where we kind of have gone with adopting Agile and bringing it kind of in the centre to that hybrid way of working, I think with coming out of the pandemic and people being able to, you know, move more around, obviously, and come back into the office a bit, I think we've got to get the balance right. And and I know I was um, contracting it at one of the organisations in the pandemic just between some of the um, lockdowns. And the pro one of the project teams actually self-determined they needed to be in the office three days a week because they needed to be with each other to get, they were in a high pressure project. It was at a critical time and they self-determined. So I think as leaders, we need to encourage, regardless of organisational policy, even though that might get me into trouble, <laughs> we need to, <laughs> we need to, again, empower people and self-determine if you need to be in the office together because that's the best way to communicate because, you know, you need to bounce off each other or you're in, you know, that stage where you've got workshops every second day and so forth. But then when you get past that, it's okay to be separate again. I think we need to kind of give some permission because I think it's a bit confused out there at the moment. The other thing I have noticed is we are getting better at communicating online. Um, I've witnessed in the last six months some really powerful conversations that you went, oh, God, we did that all on Teams. Um, so I think we're getting better at it. But the challenge, and I'm not sure what the right answer is, working remotely, the way you communicate is setting up meetings and so everybody gets drowned with, you know, oh, I've got half hour meetings, you know, for seven hours of the day because someone wants to catch up with you. So what do they do? They set up a meeting. I don't know quite what the answer is, but I really liked what Elzan said about the um, the, the virtual huddle. Um, and so I think we've just got to continue to work at it um, because we've got the technology I think it's, our, again, our human brains. We've got to think about how we're talking to each other and how to still be respectful um, and how to build the trust to be able to communicate virtually. Because um, I don't, I wouldn't like to see it go back to we have to be in the office five days a week. I think everybody's kind of moved past that. In terms of the dependencies, again, that's, that's a difficult one. So if we go back, say, a few years when, again, running really big 
um, transformation programs. Everyone would get their spreadsheet of all the different dependencies. Um, and you'd sit there in meetings and you'd review it and it was really stagnant. It wasn't dynamic. So I think in terms of managing dependencies, we've got the tooling that's really effective um, in terms of JIRA and those sorts of things at the detailed level. But I think at the more macro level around if you've got multiple initiatives running and how do they all fit together, I think the conversation is the most important, encouraging the discussion between projects and how you do that, whether it's a meeting or, or regular catch-ups, but encouraging, say, project managers to talk to each other or the BAs to talk to each other so they can talk about what is actually going on. Because a line item in a spreadsheet to say, oh, this project's dependent on that coming from that project, those meetings, they're just not that constructive. Like you do go through the process, but it's kind of going through the process as opposed to having the meaningful discussion about what's going on. So I know that wasn't very specific and it doesn't come up with a lot of answers, but it's kind of just reflective of, I suppose, experience and maybe us working together. It's ways of working, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And all the points you've made are very valid there. And like you say, it's a lot of that collaboration piece and with mm. mul within multiple areas is having that connect um, and how you manage that, I suppose, is very individual, dependent on the company that you work within. So, um, Alan, what's your take on that? How would you improve intercommunications? Uh, just, I'll start with the, the, the point that uh, Elzin made on uh, the online huddle. I love it. Um, the, the thing is, it kind of resonates with what we do in Tapcorp and what I do with my team as well. Um, so I've got a team across multiple uh, states. I've got a team in Melbourne, Brisbane, and, and also in Sydney. So we've been sort of having a lot of virtual meetings even before the pandemic. But then once the pandemic started, we had to 100% rely on virtual meetings. So we used to have virtual games uh, just to get the morale up. We used to have an end-of-day call every day at 4.30 just to check on you know mental health and see if everyone's doing good before you close up for the day and stuff like that. Um, so now that things are sort of slowly getting back to normal, we still rely a lot on these virtual calls. Um, the way we've addressed uh, intercommunication challenges is, um, so before pandemic, we used to have something called big room planning. So it's a technically a quarterly planning because we've got hundreds of products within Tapcorp, mm -hmm. multiple teams, and there's a lot of dependencies. Unless you do this plan properly, you're going to fail. So we used to have something called the big room planning where everyone gets into a room. We have this big physical board. We talk about this is what we are doing, but we are dependent on you. Are you guys be you know ready to get this done in a couple of months? Yes, no, make that plan. And then we agree. We moved that to an online version of that. We used to call it increment planning or PI planning. Um, cool. And we've got a few tools that we can use online. Same thing, but it's all virtual now. So we draw on the board, drag and drop and stuff like that. That's actually quite handy because now that it's virtual, we can actually send that comms out to everyone from the CEO to everyone knows exactly what the teams are working on. That's what you're committing to for the quarter. So um, accountability and responsibility is just there for you. Do you know what I mean? Everyone knows what they're working on. The dependencies are mapped uh, and, and that's working well. And then for, for the last year or so, we've also been trying to do uh, PI playback. So every month we sort of play back, work out how we are progressing on track behind, ahead of the game. 
we do demos of uh, of uh, how things are going for each team. We've got Scrum of Scrum, so we come and bring up updates. So these are sort of ways we are um, doing more on comms just to make sure that things are progressing well. So that's something that I, I think we we're doing pretty good. Yeah, perfect. And like you say, it holds you accountable as well then in terms of what you've set, what goals you have set, where you're at, where you're at now and how do you potentially push forward or regain that momentum if, if you're not quite there. So no, they're really, really good points. Thank you so much. Um, so this leads on quite nicely to our next question, which is around funding. Um, I know, Lynn, we mentioned this previously and Elzan, we mentioned around waterfall methodologies in finance. So I'm really keen to hear the uh, answers here. Um, so, how would you navigate through funding processes um, when budgets are still used in a traditional way? So, Lynn, I'll pop that to you first. Yeah, so a, a couple of points here. I think um, if you're in an organisation that is trying to move to more agile ways of working, but your finance processes aren't adjusting, you've got to uh, uh, come up with, again, that way of working that meets the finance requirements, but gives you enough room uh, to still, you know, bring that agility and collaboration uh, into play. So I think to navigate that, you, you know, the way that I've seen it done and been part of doing it in recent years is if you can have a high level framework that, you know, gives you the ability to iterate through the layers of detail, have your checkpoints or your stage gates to step through so that you're not uh, asking the finance people um, to commit to providing funding and they're not sure how long it'll take and what you'll get and what the benefits are, then you give them um, a bit of comfort um, that you're checkpointing along the way. And and we've often both uh, in the current organisation in I'm in and uh, one of the previous ones recently, we often talked about giving that order of magnitude of this is what we think the total thing will cost but we just want this much to do the next piece of work and then we'll come back to you, checkpoint, we're still on track and then we can move forward. And then within those checkpoints, you can work however is your best way of working. So, you know, if you're working agile, you've got the room to do that agile way of working. If it's a traditional one, you know, it, it slots in nicely. So I think there's, there's a bit of a mix there. The one thing that I think has been really challenging for finance departments is when we're putting in place agile team agile based teams or an agile based structure um you know with our squads and chapters and and those sorts of things is they they struggle to comprehend having that persistent team in place doing continuous delivery and you're asking for funding up front at the beginning of the financial year as part of budget planning to fund this team and you say, well, what are they going to do? What are they going to deliver? Where where are the benefits? And it's difficult to actually answer those questions when you're setting it up. And one thing I saw work really well at Jetstar, the digital team, which was separate to the technology team, the way they did it, and I thought it was really good, was that they got them to got the um, finance people to trust them enough to start and give them a level of funding then they planned on their revenue gain because they were doing all the that was all the sales part and the customer servicing part they were able to deliver and prove results so through 
you know, constant delivery and, and getting increased revenue and going after those smart things that would increase revenue, they could prove what they could do. So the next financial year, they could ask for a bit more because they said, you know, we've delivered this, exceeded this, let's do this. So I think in those areas where you've got the ability to show direct relationship to revenue, you can build a level of trust that then gives them comfort to operate that. Having said that, that's more difficult, say, when you're in the infrastructure space and you've got to do, you know, network upgrades or data center projects and so forth. It's really hard to to justify that from a persistent team perspective. So, so yeah, a couple of couple of things there. I think you need some framework um, if they're not shifting. They're, and they're very, I've seen very few organisations shift the <laughs> whole scale into an agile mindset in, in the finance space. So you need to find somewhere in the middle um, that kind of meets that. And then when you can uh, um, operate in a way that relates directly to revenue generation, build that level of trust to justify continuous delivery with persistent teams in, in that agile way of working. Yeah, some fantastic points that you've made there, Lynn. And I'm, I'm interested to see Alan's point here because I know we discussed around regulatory um, organisations yes. as well. And I imagine that um, it's quite it's quite varied within different organisations. So, yeah, Alan, what's your take on, I, I suppose, navigating through that funding process as well? Yeah, so the funding process kind of changes from, um, I wouldn't say company to company, but more from a project to team perspective. So, so um, I worked in projects in Tercop itself, which was project funded. So you have a big project, it could take two years and upfront you give your ROI and you get the project funded. Um, and then you have the persistent funding model. So usually Lynn's right, so a project funding is a lot more easier. You can do a business case and say, you know, give us this amount of money and this is your project timeline. These are your benefits, it's a compliance benefit or a finance benefit, revenue benefit, so on. Makes it a lot easier. The moment you come to persistent funding, and that's where the struggle comes in. Uh, and it's been a struggle, even now, mm-hmm. even for this financial year. We've got the funding, but it, it's not easy. Um, so, because it's harder to uh, pinpoint an ROI in an agile ways of working where you have a persistent team. Sometimes you're doing R&D, trying to do something new that won't really have a revenue output, right? So, but that's the whole point of having a persistent fund and team to, to, mm-hmm. to, be, invest in innovation so that is a challenge but the, the the way we've come out of it is by proving that the money you invest in the team will eventually have an investment or an, a, a return on that investment so we've sort of proved it took some time uh four five years six years now um they've constantly been delivering delivering value delivering revenue revenue uplift so it makes it a lot more easier now to, to get the funding starting it's a process um, once you prove yourself then I think it makes it easier yeah and that's a brilliant point that backs up Lynn in terms of having that trust as well and in the project pipeline and being able to refer back to that Elsan I know we mentioned previously around waterfall methodologies within finance teams as well so what's your kind of take on the funding process um, in terms of budgeting I think I agree with what Lynn and, and Alan both said about building that trust um, with finance because a lot of times I've noticed you do the business case when it's a project-funded team um, and it's so 
filled with jargon and technical language that they don't actually understand what they're going to get for the money that they're giving the team. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's also about changing the narrative a little bit so that it's more focused on um, something that the finance team can actually understand, um, something tangible that they can latch onto. It's not about building infrastructure or microservices, or th- it's about enabling a customer experience. So changing that focus a little bit more on a zoomed out view, um, I think really helps. Um, and then I've, I think lengthening the process. So I think it's quite the opposite of what, what Lynn mentioned, but I think it's different to, to different teams. Um, some teams are mostly OPEX funded and some teams are mostly CAPEX funded. So a CAPEX funded team is, I mean, it's, it's easy to, to put together a business case and get funding because it's a very clearly defined outcome where someone that's OPEX, um, you sort mm-hmm. of need that persistent team because they're just constantly um, hacking away at like basically keeping the lights on and improving as they go. So it's a very different scenario. Um, but I've lengthened, I've tried to lengthen the process to say, okay, instead of doing four business cases, let's do one for the whole year. Um, that includes everything. Um, this is what I can show you at the end of it. And I'll come and prove every month how we're making progress towards achieving those goals. Um, and in that way, building the trust with them. So that next time when you go and ask for a bigger, um, bucket of money, you have the evidence <laughs> to show that you can actually deliver. Um, but it is, it is challenging. Um, it's, I mean, it's a topic that I've actually discussed quite a bit this year um, at, at meetups and other, other places. Um, I don't think there's, there's a solution to it necessarily yet. Um, I've also brought finance a little bit closer to my team where I can. So we have finance um, um, representatives from finance that works with our specific teams to help out with our governance around tracking how we spend. And um, if they're in closer to my team and they see how we operate and the challenges that we face, um, they actually understand a little bit more what we're asking for and why we're asking for it. Um, And having that constant um, person also allows you to build that relationship with them over time. So I found that's been really helpful. Um, And then they can also go and be our cheerleaders with the rest of finance because they understand exactly what we're going through. Um, So those are some of the things that I've, I've been aiming to do at least in our space perfect and i really love that idea of like integration as well within multiple teams and having that kind of open forum i suppose like learning alongside each other and understanding the projects more in depth um lynn is there anything that you'd like to add in terms of um the funding processes yeah i think um probably just to be clear i think um if we dig into how do you build that trust, it comes back to um, the results and the evidence. So it's around how you can actually build in measurement capability to prove the the results. So if you're trying to justify a persistent team and they're not necessarily revenue generating, what other metrics can you apply? So one example I know I was involved with a couple of years ago, we had lots of issues in one of the business areas with um you know things going wrong and you know our ability to try and get on top of all those incidents and issues and it needed some continuous improvement so we we started thinking about using the metrics of improving the business performance so you know they weren't a revenue generating area it it was an operational area and if we could keep the systems up if we could keep the connectivity going, then that had less business impact um, associated with it. Um, so I think that mindset of um, you know measurement results orientated and evidence 
that's particularly with um, finance areas and and people, you know, that focus on the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Alan, would you like to make another point? Uh, yeah, just back to the point on uh, OPEX and CAPEX funding that uh, Elsa spoke about. I, I think one thing that we, it kind of works for Tapcorp that I'll share that info here. We've actually spoken to finance and the funding team about the need for an OPEX team, like the prod support team, the ops team. Uh, they're all OPEX. So we've, we've come to an agreement that you need a bare minimum ops team that's needed to support the business. And we've got a persistent continuous funding model for OPEX with an OPEX budget pre-allocated every year. That's saving us a lot of time to work out our OPEX budget per year, uh, at least from a resource point of view. There's other OPEX budgets we need to figure things out, but <clears throat> but um, from, a, from a resource point of view, that helps. So, so year on year, we sort of focus on what sort of capital funding we need, but OPEX is sort of sorted out for us, makes our life a lot easier. Yeah, the only other thing I wanted to add um, in relation to uh, how you actually structure up the, the funding is I think it also, there's an element of the portfolio planning that is helpful and the way that you structure up the different types of change and picking up on the theme that Ellen was referring to around regulatory compliance. So obviously in banking, uh, similar to um, Tabcor, that there's a huge amount of regulatory compliance. And when I was um, with one of the banks, we did start to try and separate out, you know, what were the compliance, you know, in our planning activities, what were the compliance activities that we knew were coming up? Um, so, for example, with, you know, all the credit cards and the car card schemes, you knew you had kind of a, a, a pattern, almost a release pattern you could follow. So you could set your funding and, and take away all the heat. You'd, you'd always get hit from left field if there was legislative or other compliance type changes. But again, if you try and take that away from, you know, all the discretionary activity you do, it can be a better conversation because you're not trying to mix it into the uh, into the discretionary stuff. And one of the hard lessons learnt uh, through that time that I, I spent in banking was don't try and mix compliance and discretionary change together. Um, with compliance, get it done, deliver it, get it off the plate, and then look to um, sort of address your discretionary um requirements and initiatives separately because we found when we were mixing them together you'd always have to comp when things went wrong which they often do in delivery <laughs> you'd always compromise on the enhancement style or the or the change outcome uh to meet the compliance requirement and so it kind of ended up um with some really difficult situations <laughs> that's it as well and it's, it's having to continually reassess as well um and with that process as well, it moves us quite nicely over to just around how to move and scale as well. Like when you do get those budgets and you, and you are able, um, how do you do that without disrupting your your current team? So I'll pass this one back to Elzan. Um, so yeah, how would you move and scale without disrupting your team? I think there's a couple of ways you can you can probably approach it. Um, I usually try and and ring Phantom a team or a stream of work and not disrupt that stream. So it depends how many streams of work you have. Um, if you have a stream of work that's the highest priority, 
that team is going to be left alone and we're not going to scale them. We're not going to add new people. We're not going to do anything to their methodologies. They're just going to carry on like they're, like they're working. And then I'll, I'll focus on scaling in other areas. Um, because if you scale across the board, it can be um, quite disruptive. So um, it's quite challenge, um, challenging dealing with um, business that are not involved in managing delivery closely. They don't understand if I give you an extra $250,000, why can't you just deliver faster? Um, because um, <laughs> it's not that easy. You can't just add more people. We're just, it's not resources. It's people with like um, skill sets and knowledge and domain knowledge and all of those things need to be built up. So um, I usually work on a, um, on a three month limit to say, if I'm adding new people to my team, it's going to disrupt for, t- for three months minimum. It's also going to take them three months to really become productive team members contributing um, independently before then they will need support from their peers um, because they still um, they might have the skill set, the core skill of what it requires to be in the, in the team, but they don't understand the specific, like in my example, calls processes that they need to get familiar with and people within the business that they need to talk to, especially big organizations usually have different departments taking care of the different portions of the um, SDLC and, and getting stuff into production. Um, so if I scale, I'll try and keep the disruption to um, to a certain part. And if I do need to scale across the board, I usually do it in increments. So let's scale this team, let them settle, let's scale the next team, let them settle, let's scale the next team, let them settle. So, um, and sometimes also it's less disruptive if you, if you need to scale to internally scale and move people around um, rather than just adding new people to everything. So, um, so that's the, the resource component of it. I think the other side of it is also just to, um, I'm a big believer in transparency. So I communicate as much as I can, as often as I can to my teams. Um, if we need to deliver more than what we planned for, we also do a, a version of a big good idea what the over the next. And um, if things are changing or we need to, potentially might have more work that comes into the team's pipeline. I usually share everything with them to say, yes, we've got a beautiful plan. Keep in mind, there might be changes. It's not certain yet. I will talk to you when it does happen. Keep it in the back of your mind. So when I do come and tell them, okay, we're pivoting completely, it's not a total surprise because they knew that I've actually planted the seed months ago already. So I think communicating and being as transparent as you can, because sometimes you can't, you can't be. Um, is really also beneficial to the team because then they're emotionally starting to prepare themselves for the change that's coming without them consciously knowing it. Um, and it's just a little bit easier for them to handle it when it does come and support you. Yeah, I really love your um, your people focus as well. And just an, an, a wider idea of the whole team as well, not individual subsections. Um, really keen to get your thoughts on this as well, Alan. So how would you move in scale without disrupting your team? I agree with uh, Elzan's uh, um, command. I think uh, the 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 way I try to explain this to the management sometimes is you know, that, uh, it's constant. Uh, that why can't I put more people in to get stuff done faster? Like you can't put nine ladies in a room and make a baby in a month. It takes some. It, it takes time. Right? <laughs> this is the example I gave. So some some of the work by putting more people, you're not going to achieve much. Um, but there are benefits in in scaling up in certain instances. So the way I look at scaling is uh, more on silos. So for example, on, on the, in the tech space, 
automation engineering i can scale that up without with less disruption uh, i it could even to an extent run as a silo project without impacting the revenue you upskill and increase the test automation uh, within the team that's quite easily doable uh, but adding more tech resources means you need to scale you need to actually drop uh, work to actually achieve faster in the future because you got to hand over training uh, and that's a disruption so i try to avoid that mid pi if you want to do that i'll do it to the next quarter and plan it accordingly um i try my best not to disrupt the team that's not beneficial so if you're scaling scale but scale it by planning it ahead um or scale in areas where there'll be less disruption would be sort of where i would handle it perfect perfect thank you so much alan um and lynn what would your what would be your take on moving and scaling and team disruption <laughs> Yeah, giving the perspective from a, a portfolio end-to-end delivery management perspective and and in the roles I've had in the last few years, I've had accountability for like the BAs, the PMs, sometimes quality management um, and a few other resource types. Um, I think from that portfolio view, um, you can scale according to your demand of your projects, but part of it... And, you know, we used to have this joke, we used to call it resourcing Tetris. It was about how did you complement and plug and play when you had new initiatives coming up? The more notice you had, the more you could think about the different combinations of people that you could put together. Um, If you've got a material uh, internal workforce, um, then you can leverage that knowledge because they're building that IP up Um, from being in the organisation over time. So you then put that with how you're bringing in your contingent workers uh, into the team to work out how to complement that. Um, When things come up sort of left field, um, which (laughs) happens a lot, obviously, um, you then have to be able to respond to that really quickly. So again, it's around looking end to end across the team and looking at how could you get some knowledge into something without completely disrupting the other piece so again it's all sort of that um reactive uh, um sort of looking at the skill sets looking at the people um seeing what value they can add seeing where you can minimize disruption say to one piece of work to actually support another piece of work because it really has to happen the second um part then in leading projects um one of the things that i think is really important and regardless of what way of working that you're doing is through the life cycle where you're delivering a specific outcome you go through different stages obviously and and regardless of whether that's a short period or a long period particularly with transformational type change you've got to recalibrate and you've got to recalibrate the team to be focused on different things at different times. And that's all leadership and and loved what Elzana and Ellen said about communicating with the team, keeping them informed, keeping them focused, listening to what they're saying. If they're uncomfortable with where we're at or we're hitting issues, get in and find out what's going on and work out how you need to adjust and recalibrate. And then if you have to supplement and bring people on, you do need to think about how that disrupts, but you may be in a situation where you can't expect the team to do any more. You've got to add people onto it and you've got to plan for that um, activity to happen with people coming in and getting people up to speed. Yeah, fantastic points made there. Thanks, Lynn. Um, Elzana, is there anything you'd like to add? 
Yeah, I was just thinking um, um, while while Lynn and Alan was speaking that sometimes, um, especially coming from a business analyst background, I um, I always realize that like, in some scenarios or conversations, the problems that business are trying to solve are not necessarily problems that needs to be solved by technology. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a process problem. It's just a process improvement and it will solve the problem. So I think it's also keeping it simple um, mm-hmm. and and just reevaluating the understanding the why behind the, re- the request for scaling or accelerating because it's not always um, necessary to add resources. Um, and the other thing is just sometimes automating a process um, or uh, defining a pre- pre-approval to a system or something will, will already accelerate your delivery. If you just remove some of the red tape in your process, um, you can actually get the results out to your users faster. So I think it's always important to look at all of the scenarios. Um, like, okay, we need to scale why. Um, okay, what are our options? Um, is it a, a process thing or do we actually really need more people on, on the ground? Um, and um, and then just reevaluating the situation from there because sometimes you can save yourself a little bit of trouble and money by just stick, taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture. Yeah, some really good points there, made, Elzan. Thank you so much. Um, and just to just to revert back to that piece around red tape, I know we've got a question surrounding um, the regulated space and how to kind of agile release within that like regulated space. So um, yeah, Alan, I'll pop this question over to you. Um, so how 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 to agile release in a regulated space? How do we do that? It's not easy, I'll be honest. And um, I, I wouldn't call it red tape. It's just a compliance commitment that we we sign up when we are in the industry. We we, we are bound by regulatory uh, requirements and compliance that we need to sort of um, uh, um, abide by. Um, so, but it it does bring in challenges, right? So uh, there's the the compliance and the regulations are in place for a reason, um, and then that is in in our case that is to safeguard the punters. Right. So to put it simply, um, so any work that we do, we'll have to run it past the, the regulators, make sure that they're happy, get the tick of approval before we put those features out to the market, uh, to the punters. So what that brings in is an additional layer to an efficient, agile release process. So in an ideal world, you do you start the work two weeks sprint. If you're, you're following Scrum and two weeks later, you're shipping something to prod. So constantly you're, you're releasing something to the, the customers. And also, if things aren't working right, you're failing fast, right? And you can pivot quickly. Where we are right now, we can't do that because we are regulated. So even though we do two weeks scrum, we are piling up all these work for a submission three months later because the direct process takes time. So what happens is three months is multiple sprints worth of work sitting together and at one lot going to prod. So technically, you're not really failing fast. You're failing late, right? And then, then that brings its own challenges. How do you, how do you, how do you, so you need to have processes in place to navigate through those challenges because when you fail to fix it, it might take another three months because fix itself needs to go through another rec process. So, so you got to invest a lot in automation testing. Your your reliance on testing has to be so good that things don't fail, right? So there's a lot of investment even on the quality side of things. And BA and requirements becomes very mm-hmm. critical. So in a in a in a standard agile process, sometimes we are sort of lenient on requirements. You figure things out on the way as you go, right? But in our case, we have to. That's why I said it at the beginning. We sort of follow a hybrid model, where we are big on getting the requirements done early because you don't want to fail 
three months later. So, so these are the kind of changes we have to work within that rig space um, so that we are successful and we don't fail with, with releases in, in, a, in a regulated space. Perfect. Thank you so much, Alan. I'm, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts as well, Lynn, um, obviously with that compliance background as well. So what's your take on Agile release within a regulated space? I really agree with what Alan said. I think it kind of has to be um, at best a hybrid um, type of approach and, and the hybrid at least drives better collaboration because like um, a number of years ago when we were stuck kind of in that traditional way of working, you know, you just labour through each phase of the life cycle and, and you get to the end and then, you know, things didn't work and you'd be back at the start again. So I think you can get some dynamicness, if that's a word, <laughs> into into the process by bringing some of the strengths of agile ways of working, but you're kind of constrained to Alan's point. And I really liked what he said about the requirements. And, and I think the requirements in compliance are key and, the, and it's you've got to be really clear to um, actually interpret the requirements and layer it correctly. And what I mean by that is you, you have your compliance specialists who can interpret the actual compliance requirements, but then you need another layer that takes that for your organisation and interprets the business requirements for the organisation. I've seen issues happen where you literally take the compliance requirements, say, from the regulator and try and implement that literally without doing that interpretive layer for your organisation. Um, because, say, for example, you know, I used to work at Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. Even though you had to meet a requirement, what we had to do in comparison around scale and complexity based on our business compared to, say, what one of the big banks would have to do to implement, say, a privacy requirement, even though the outcome had to be the same it is in terms of meeting that privacy requirement, the way we would need to do it was different. Um, and it would be done. And also, you've got different systems to other organisations. So I think that's really important. And then I think the point Alan made about the quality management package to keep it kind of going and, and together and, uh, so you don't get to the end and find out that, you know, it doesn't work is <laughs> really important as well. <laughs> yeah. But thank you so much, Lynn. Really appreciate that. And Elzana, really, really keen to hear um, your kind of take, especially from a BA background. So in terms of Agile release what within a regulated space, what are your thoughts? Um, so I've not worked um, in a like in a bank or a financial institution previously where it was um, really strict in terms of the regulated um, environment. But I have worked in, um, we've, we've built mobile apps where, I mean, you're very much like there's a, a big marketing release looming that's been communicated to your customers and you're very much reliant on on Apple accepting your app before Christmas rush starts. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that like you either miss it, make it or you miss it. So there's a cutoff. So you either disappoint your customers or you have a buggy app that gets deployed. So um, I think from that point of view, what like some of the techniques that we've used is I mean, absolutely quality engineering is, is super important. Um, I think it's also important that it's not a 
gateway that sits within your delivery process that um, you know we're going to be delivering a building solution and uh, we're going to be testing and chucking it over the wall. It needs to sort of be an integrated process where everyone's part of um, championing quality, um, including analysts, engineers, managers, everyone needs to be 100% skin in the game on that. Um, but I think also what we've done is wherever we can, um, getting our solutions um, as an internal release um, or a, a non-customer facing release where you can. So what we've done like in the past is, is a very primitive solution, but I mean, getting a, a copy of the app, um, sending it to my phone and just playing around with it. Um, like I have the only copy or like five people in the team have the copies of the app and just you know, playing around with it and getting a feel for it. And you have that extra pair of objective eyes on, on what you're building. Um, sometimes you get a little bit blind if you're constantly looking at the solution you're building um, and you don't see the small little nuances. Um, maybe CX are not always just bugs. So I think from that point of view, is, is a technique that we've used quite often. Um, and even now, um, we're releasing with um, between behind feature switches. So although it's done and it's in production and we can observe it in a production-like environment, we don't actually have any usage of our um, platform yet, and it gives us an opportunity to at least look at its health from from a production point of view before we get it into the hands of our customers, which is always um, where possible, um, have been very helpful. Yeah, some great points made there. Thanks, Elzan. And again, this moves on quite nicely to our next test question around how to effect how to effectively manage different teams and different priorities. I know there was um, a lot of mention there in terms of testing and ensuring that each part of the project is working efficiently, and obviously those deliverables are met. So yeah, uh, I'd like to give this question back to Ellen. I suppose is just to how would you effectively manage teams with different priorities to ensure those um, project goals are met. Absolutely. I, I think it also boils down to um, planning upfront. So like I said, so in Tapco, what we do is we've got this quarterly planning. Um, and I think we, we, I'm a firm believer that as long as you plan well enough, it's easy to pivot even if you have to later on. But if you don't have a plan, it's even more harder to pivot when changes comes into play. So, so even if you do have multiple teams with different skill set, um, making sure that you have a planning place makes it easier to manage the priorities of different teams. Okay. Um, so I think uh, my strategy obviously would be to to spend all the time upfront to make sure the plans in place. And this is something you do upfront, not the day before the PI planning to work things out. So so in our case, we've got business owners who's, who are not part of tech. So we spend quite a bit, a lot of time with the business unit trying to understand the business priorities uh, and then work that out in the, into our roadmap. Then you have the tech priorities as well, work through it into the roadmap, work out what the teams are going to do. Um, and then you come up with a strategy on which team does what um, and, and how do you prioritize work for each of the teams. Um, and again, uh, going back to the, the big room planning, and that's when you work out the dependencies. <clears throat> sorry, I think I got kicked off for a minute. Bad reception, sorry. Um, um, so that's when you have the dependency mapping comes into play afterwards once you have the plan in place uh, and then you do the dependencies and work out who does what um so that that that's been how we've uh, in we in Tapcorp have been working and even in the past in my previous company the pr previous place i worked I, I had teams working in us i worked for a us company listed in uh, nasdaq but had an office in sydney so i had a dev team uh, in the us I had a team in israel i had a team in uh, singapore so 
each each team had different responsibilities. So working out each team has the right priority and then they sync up well for a common delivery would be the sort of the challenge that we, we have to plan better. Yeah, yeah, of course. Great, great points made there. Thanks, Alan. Um, Lynn, would you like to build on anything that Alan said there just in regards to effectively managing teams and their priorities? Yeah, just some great points there, Alan, I think. Um, and just then extrapolating that out into, say, um, project management, I think that planning also plays into, say, say you're setting up a, a, a project team with, which is multidisciplined, um, I think it comes down to that mobilisation piece that I talked about earlier. As part of the planning, you've actually got to plan how the project team is structured and the way that they're going to work. And and depending on what the initiative is, there's different ways that that can work. Sometimes, you know, you see project teams structured between business disciplines and technical disciplines, and, and that might work in certain situations. But in other uh, initiatives, and, and I think this suits probably transformational style initiatives where you've got a lot of business change and potentially operating model change and, you know, you've got a lot of business people maybe involved, structuring it according to the outcomes you're trying to uh, achieve along functional lines and, and bringing in some matrix concepts, you know, like getting your BAs to work end-to-end -end across the streams or your architects to working across the streams or testing working across the streams. But you've got to work that out right up front. And what you start with probably won't be what you end up with because to that point, as you go through the life cycle, you've got to assess the work that you're doing. So structure your team according to the work that's required and then be open to adjusting that as you move through different phases. And the way you need to be organised to, say, do a big go-live exercise is quite different to how you need to work right up front where you're doing requirements and design. Um, the other comment I would make is then if you're managing a practice, so a BA practice or a solution architecture practice, and you're the practice lead, I think you need to understand... Um, the nature of your work and that comes down to having the right leadership for that type of role and hence the right person in that type of role because uh, for example BAs love to know the big picture or oh, you know typically what I find BAs love to know the big picture and quite often they work better when they know how it, it it's all going to fit together they're, they're not they don't need to be just drip fed with bits and pieces and because then they'll ask lots of questions. And I've had examples over the years where people will say, your BAs ask too many questions. And it's like, yes, that's good. <laughs> that's what we want. You know, so you kind of got to know some of the typical characteristics and, and that is generalising a little bit because not everybody's the same. But I think to manage the people in that area or that discipline, you kind of got to get to know what makes up those people uh, to work in that way to support them because their priorities and how to manage what's important to them and hence the work they're doing and the outcome they need to achieve is quite different to say, you know, understanding how developers need to work and, and the best way to manage them. So I think that would be the other aspect I'd add. 
Yeah, I think there's some really good points. That, like you say, it's understanding the why behind as well, mm. um, and how to, how yeah. to figure out those particular teams and their priorities. No, that's a very very good point, Lynn. Thank you. So, Salam, what are your thoughts around obviously affecting um, effectively managing different teams and their priorities? Um, I just want to comment on on Lynn's um, comment around BAs asking to be questions. <laughs> that was my favourite part when I was a BA, <laughs> interrogating the the customer. You know, <laughs> um, I really enjoyed that. Um, so I think um, I think when it comes to different priorities, it's important to get all the data points. And um, something that I've noticed is missing in a lot of cases is the cost of delay. So it's not about first in, first out. Like, yeah, we have a list of things. And yeah, you might have asked me stuff months ago, but now this, this piece of work is going to actually um, provide a bigger benefit to the business. So this is why this should be happening first. So if you have those um, pieces of information from business or from the people that are requesting work from your teams, it becomes a lot easier to make those decisions. And it's also less emotional and more factual. So um, calculating the cost of delay on the other hand can be quite tricky. But um, I mean, at least as a starting point, understanding why we're doing things um, would, would be really beneficial, I think. Um, I mean, I always come, come, come back to tools. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a fool for a specific tool, but I love the visibility that you can create with things like advanced roadmaps um, and those views where you can, um, every team will slice up their work in a different way, but every team will still have a milestone with pieces of work that belongs to that milestone. And um, seeing that big picture view of where the milestones fits in and what needs to happen before next one can kick off. Um, if you have that view, you can anticipate delays and be proactive in moving resources or capacity around so that you can actually prevent those um, bottlenecks from happening. Um, so the more visibility, the better. Uh, when I started off this, um, I had a challenge where I was just getting work from multiple places of the business with different priorities all around and they were not even talking to each other. So in a lot of cases, they were asking me for the same things. Um, and the first thing I've done is just a simple Gantt chart with everything in there. And if I don't have it, I don't know about it. So, and this is the priority. And if you don't agree with it, let's talk about it. And everyone was just put in a room once every two weeks and we were just discussing it. And I'm um, having that level of visibility really helped reduce the, um, the tension and the frustration amongst the stakeholders. Um, so yeah, that, that big room tool, give you that visibility, big room syncing up. I mean, you can do it whenever, whenever needed. You, sometimes you don't even need to do it in person. You can just, um, have an offline dynamic view where people can go and see what, what is it looking like today and, uh, cost of play. Yeah, perfect. Some really, really good points made there. And even overall, across the whole of the discussion, um, we've really delved into many different areas. Is there any points anybody wants to make before we wrap up? Yeah, there was something I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about communication and um, and inter-team communication. I've actually recently heard from uh, Dr. Fiona Kerr about, um, I don't know if any of you have listened to any of her talks, about um, how the human brain makes connections with other people. And um, to Lynn's point, uh, when, when we were talking about that, about um, people are wanting to come back to the office to solve problems, um, I found it really interesting because the bottom line of that conversation was, I mean, hybrid is good. Sometimes people are really productive when they work at home with less disruptions. But there are scenarios where you actually will make bigger stride if you connect in person in, mm -hmm. in a physical environment. Because the way that the human brain forms connections is not just about 
talking to each other and seeing each other. It's actually a whole bunch of non-verbal physical cues that is completely missing when you're talking to someone um, on a video. So I found it really interesting and um, what I've taken from it is that if you meet someone from the first for the first time, new, new starter in your team, if you need to solve complex problems or if you need to mentor someone on your team, that's where you need to prioritize physical contact. Um, if you've prioritized that, you'll have a strong team that can solve anything remotely or hybridly um, in a hybrid environment. Yeah, so I just thought I'll just throw that in. I wanted to mention it earlier. Yeah, no, perfect. And you make a really good point as well. It's around body language as well. Um, and really identifying that within your co-workers. I know that it's a struggle for many candidates that we place. If they don't actually physically meet the team for a couple of weeks, um, it is something that we get brought up as well within our line of work, which is good. Alan, is there anything that you'd like to add? No, I'll back, uh, as I just comment about uh, physically working together. Whiteboard. This is my best friend when it comes to planning. Uh, <laughs> you, you, saw, you can solve world's problem with just drawing stuff on the board. Like we've solved so much of problems, um, and the virtual board doesn't come anywhere close to physically taking a uh, taking one of these and writing it on the board. <laughs> like I, I bet you. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And Lynn, is there anything that you'd like to add? Yeah, I'll build on Alan's comment. I have my own whiteboard in my office at home. <laughs> and I resort <laughs> to having... Well. <laughs> through, the, through the pandemic, I resorted to having um, whiteboard sessions with myself and I'd take photos of them and send them to my colleagues. <laughs> and, and to be honest, uh, you know, like yesterday, for example, I was in the office um, yesterday and uh, spent about two hours on a whiteboard with someone and I was so excited at the end of it because it was like, yes, it's all there and we've talked about it and, you know, those nonverbal cues. But having said that, I also do really um, uh, appreciate the thinking time that you get um, just by yourself and and it's interesting just watching the dynamic in the office. You know, you'll be in there and I think I've become hypersensitive. You know, you get someone who's coughing or something and you're like, what are they doing? <laughs> you know, can they go into a room and cough so they don't disturb me, you know. Um, but just to, just to wrap up um, though, and I've really enjoyed the conversation today, guys. I loved um, sharing uh, our thoughts together. Um just in terms of that cost of delay, the the other thought that I had around that, because sometimes it is really hard to to cost that up, but costing that up could also be in terms of business impact. So when you've got competing priorities and or you're trying to manage issues through with the business and, and explain that it's going to take time to resolve or you're trying to work out which particular initiative you want to take, putting it in terms of the impact to the business and the impact to the outcome rather than the impact to the project team or the cost of the project. I think that is an effective way of sort of trying to work through that prioritisation piece because often, you know, the business, given quite often they don't understand the internal workings of IT or projects and so forth, it all becomes about IT or the project. Whereas if you can turn that around and make it their problem and say, we need some direction on A, B and C because of this, that and the other, and, and this would be the impact of each scenario, I think that helps them connect more and it makes it more about us as opposed to IT and the business sort of 
trading off against each other um, and we're all in it together. So that's one thing I've found work and it's also one thing that I've seen happen quite often is the business will put it back onto the project team or, or the IT department and make it their problem when it's really the, you know, we need some direction, guys. We need some help here to work out how to, you know, prioritise all this stuff that you want or how to get an answer to this issue. Mm. Yeah, no, some really, really good points there, Lynn. And I really agree as well, just in terms of the discussion points that we've had, some really varied points from a number of different areas as well. And I'd just like to reiterate from the beginning of the podcast, just want to thank you all so much for all the contributions that you've put forward over the past few weeks. I have loved chatting to you all individually around your challenges getting to know you personally um yeah and and just once again just really really i really really appreciate everything that you've put forward for us um so once again just to our listeners back at home um the guests on our podcast today have been lynn from clean away also elzan from coles and alan from tabcorp um and again from the bottom of my heart really really appreciate all of all of the inputs that you've put forward and i'd love to invite you back on the evolution exchange australia again for everyone listening back at home we hope you can join us next time and this has been abby from the evolution exchange australia thanks guys <laughs>